0: I think it's a pretty unique origin story for an Apache project that wasn't like an already successful open source project that migrated to the Apache Software Foundation, which is how things typically happen. This was a bunch of separate communities forming a new one at the same time they formed the software project. So I loved it. I was so happy to be on a project when something this wild happened.
1: This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. Today we talk about Apache Beam, which is historical both for me personally. I worked on Apache Beam while at Google, but also it's important in the history of data processing in Google. When Google went from publishing papers to producing more open source This was their first Apache contribution. The conversation arcs from a quick description of what the project is into the history, which dates all the way to MapReduce and covers kind of 15 years at Google to some of the interesting things that are happening today on the project. In the middle, you'll hear a lot about the Apache way. We talk a bit about the transition from the way Google did open source to how the Apache Foundation does it. And we'll also cover some of the intricacies of the technical aspects of the project how it handles event time versus processing time, unifies batch and streaming, as well as supporting multiple languages and multiple execution runners. Ken and Pablo are good friends. We work together at Google, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation. So let's just jump into the recording now. Today we're talking about Apache Beam, and I have with us Pablo Estrada and Ken Knowles, who are both PMC members on the project. I'll note that Apache Beam is historical for a couple of reasons here. I mean, it's one of Google's first, I want to say Google's first, Apache contribution and kind of marks a a pivot from when Google did papers to Google doing open source projects. And it inspired Contributor. So this was a project I worked on, as we'll get into, and led me down interest in open source and led very directly to this podcast. So it's a bit of a meta history on Contributor by doing a history on Apache Beam. Pablo, Ken, thanks for coming. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. So uh, let's do the the quick description on what Apache Beam is. Ken, go ahead.
0: No, Pablo, go ahead. No, okay. Um, yeah, Apache Beam is a programming model and library. It's a framework for doing big data processing uh, across a variety of engines. You know, and in your language of choice, sort of mixing and matching. You know, connects to any data that you've got process it any way you want, puts it where you want it afterwards.
1: And it's kind of unique in that sense where there's probably a handful of data processing engines people are familiar with. Some we've talked about in the show, Spark, Flink, you, you would be better to name some others. And this is not necessarily one of those, but it's kind of a generalized interface where I could describe a pipeline like I would in one of those, but it executes on one of those.
0: That's right. There's not a million ways to do embarrassingly parallel computation, and they have a lot in common. So while Beam sort of originates from the Cloud Dataflow SDK, that's one of the engines you can run it on that I happen to be closely related to. You know, recognizing that there's sort of core concepts to doing embarrassingly parallel big data computation, and that's where Beam comes from. And so you can run a Beam pipeline on Spark on Flink, on Cloud Dataflow, Samza. People have created some that were just experimental. Like IBM Streams had one for a time.
2: There's uh Apache, Apache Nemo. Nemo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's several different communities that have written integrations between Beam and their their engine, which, you know, will usually run on a cluster and they can schedule Apache Beam Workflows or pipelines, which is the way we call them.
1: And maybe before we move into the history, which we'll do shortly, you mentioned that I can do this in my language of choice. So walk me through kind of, we've talked about the bottom half of this pipeline, you know, where they get executed, but maybe what are my possibilities for writing a pipeline?
2: Um, well, yeah. So today we have the two older ones we have a Java SDK, which was the first one to be written, we have a Python SDK. You know, we have a almost fully supported Go SDK. We're releasing the full support, uh, I believe, next month. Oh, we also have SQL. So we support SQL inside your other SDK written pipelines. And you can also have a SQL console where you can write uh, some pipelines. And uh, that's it that we have kind of supported. We recently worked on a prototype on a TypeScript SDK we're trying to push forward to something that we can let others use. But uh, yeah, that's what we have.
0: Yeah, I think I want to mention that on this specific topic of using your language of choice, this ability to execute any language is a core part of Beam, as you say. And specifically, Beam comes with protocols and definitions uh, for how to execute the user code that is inside all these pipelines in whatever language. So that's how like the TypeScript SDK came together in a week because we had these protocols, and we, all you need to do is make a thing that can run your TypeScript code and then make the piece that submits the pipeline to this engine, and you can run it on any portable runner, right? So you can run TypeScript on Flink after a bunch of people get together for a week. And I just want to specifically highlight that it, it's not dependent on the engine. This SDK now works on every engine that supports Beam's portable protocols, and You can mix and match languages within a pipeline. That's another way you get things off the ground quickly, right? We didn't write any code to be able to access like BigQuery in TypeScript or Go. We have a very mature connector. The most mature connectors that have been battle-tested are written with a Java SDK, and you can plug them into a pipeline that you're using in another language.
1: Got it. So yeah, I think you're right. You may not appreciate the fact that you can write a TypeScript front end, a framework in a week and then, and have that execute then on all the runners using all the connectors suggests quite a bit of, I don't know, modularity or, or something. Fantastic. So without further ado, let's talk about how this came to be. Cause I think there's a lot to tell there. How far back should we go? I mean, do we go all the way back to MapReduce and maybe you can kind of also embed the context of Google and the way they did work then.
0: Yeah. Um, well, we can definitely go back to MapReduce. So I start from the transition from MapReduce to this internal mm-hmm. technology called Flume Yep. Right, at Google. So everybody's heard of MapReduce, at least probably. You have one shuffle and you do, you do some data, you, then you group stuff by key, then you do some more stuff after you've grouped it, right? And people are chaining these together and Google then produced a system that could do that more efficiently it could build a whole data processing pipeline and do better optimizations on it right so those are the two pieces of technology that came from google and what google did to share those technologies with the world was write papers kind of sketching how they worked right Um, and they were re-implemented as like hadoop MapReduce and apache crunch and of course all of the systems out there now, like Apache Flink and Apache Spark, they all do the optimizations that come from Flume. right? They're not, I don't want to overstate things. It's not like rocket science that you couldn't reinvent, so I don't know that they're derivative or anything. But everybody is sort of fusing together operations and minimizing the amount of data you shuffle around. But yeah, so Cloud Dataflow is the externalization of the technology behind Flume. right? This is the data processing that powers just everything
1: at Google. And, and maybe let me cut you off, Ken, and interject. So a Flume is is a code name inside Google, but it's also, there's an Apache Flume, which are not the they same They are thing. different, right? Yeah, let's be clear here. So th- this is Google Flume, which is the descendant of MapReduce that is now becoming an external product on GCP under the name of Dataflow.
0: That's right. That's right. I first encountered Flume... As Flume Java, because I read the paper ah, right. uh, before I joined Google, and Flume Java outlines like this next generation after MapReduce. Yes, and so Apache Beam came out of Cloud Dataflow. Like Cloud Dataflow was the back end; it shared all the core technologies of Flume because Google. We know this is super powerful. I mean, we build a whole business on it, and we had an open source SDK. Right, we distributed the Google Cloud Dataflow Java SDK and. I'm going to get into some technical details, yeah, because it's part of the origin story to me and just maybe how I think about it is that we just needed to be able to like you got you write a pipeline, you got to test it, you got to run it locally, you got to try it out, and before you launch it on the cloud, right and so that we have this open source client, which is pretty typical, and it has hooks in it, so you can run your pipeline a different way, not just on dataflow. And then along come people from Data Artisans and Cloudera, and they just sort of jumped in and be like, oh, hey, I can take this hook and make it run on Flink and make it run on Spark. So that happened organically. People found the Dataflow SDK and were like, oh, what if I run a Dataflow pipeline on these other engines? And when we noticed that, right, when we all got together, and like, oh, this is very cool. I think it's a pretty unique origin story for an Apache project that we actually had these three independent things going on those were in different repos and we dumped all of all three of them into the same repo in order to start beam right so it wasn't like an already successful open source project that migrated to the apache software foundation which is how things i think more typically happen this was a bunch of separate communities sort of forming a new one at the same time they formed the software project so i loved it i was so happy to be on a project when something this wild happened I probably skipped a bunch of interesting parts, but that's how Apache Beam came to be. We we dumped the Spark runner, the Flink runner and Cloud Dataflow SDK all in one repo and and started building.
2: Jumping back for a second into when you were talking about Flume Java, something that I believe also came into the Dataflow SDK was the internal team at Google had also built streaming capabilities, so you know, how do you analyze data that is being continuously produced? So I think Flume Java initially had been built to run this kind of MapReduce DAGs, directed acyclic graphs, and over time there were also capabilities built with Windmill, which is another internal Google system, to do analysis of data that is being produced. So instead of running a MapReduce job or a a Flume Java job every night, you would have a, a job that is running at all times and that is capturing data and either moving it uh, doing ETL with it or doing alerting or doing some kind of statistics as the data comes in.
0: So I want to say that that was another example of a Google technology and the name you'll find it under which we also wrote a there was a paper was millwheel was the code name at the time and windmill is the next generation of millwheel. Uh, yeah, my so, if, if if somebody's out there uh, googling up to yes, Dataflow includes the Flume Java technology and MillWheel technology, and that's where Beam's unified batch streaming model originates. In these two
1: uh, really influential Google technologies. Yeah, we'll we'll do some glossary and and links in the show notes to orient folks. Got it. So Millwill, or the, the similar named one, came together with Loom Java to create the Dataflow SDK, which is the open source bit, and the, the cloud engine. And then the SDK open source, folks pile in, and suddenly you've got a project in your hands. And at some point, someone was like, maybe we should do an Apache something? How does that conversation go? And are people like, I thought we wrote papers? And, and Were you there for that, Pablo? Mm-mm.
0: Nope. Oh, so I have to answer this. I was there for that. I was pretty low on the totem pole at the time. but. It's a pretty top-down decision. Someone was like, we're doing this. Apache has been synonymous with big data forever, right? And we have all these different Apache projects that are already related, right? Apache Flink and Apache Spark were already not contributing yet. But we just saw that there's all this, what do I want to say? Is only going to thrive if we join together, right? So to be clear, the ability to run the pipelines on Spark and Flink were not in the Cloud Dataflow repo. Like, they didn't contribute it to the Cloud Dataflow SDK. It was just these separate projects maintained by other people and so yeah we reached out to them we're like hey do you want to put them into a blank repository and see if we can get it all to build together and continuously and all that
2: I might add it's not only that they didn't contribute it to the repository there was no way or no formal way to do it right there was no strict governance on you know what is the contributor license for this what is the Ownership of this code, if we were to bring it into a Google-owned Cloud Dataflow repository,
1: got it. it. It it wasn't as though as they were withholding it as much as there were, just wasn't a, a path or a pattern for how to contribute. Exactly, it, it was what I call a
0: throw-over-the-wall open-source project at the time. Yeah. Right, we built the SDK internally and we dumped it onto GitHub. So we sort of reversed where the, the source of truth became external instead of internal. At the same time that we became an Apache project.
1: So I, I was also there for some of this, and, and maybe a few anecdotes we can div up. Um, you have to come up with a name when you make an Apache project. <laughs> we're, you do? We're, there were some other alternatives, weren't there? I forget what they were at the, now. But. Oh my goodness, I can't remember.
0: That's going to have to be homework for the listener.
1: I yeah, do not no, remember right.
0: the other names. But Beam is a bad, a bad pun, if that's what you're getting at. Because it's both batch and streaming. So it's just the word batch and stream smooshed together.
1: Yeah, stretch doesn't. Work quite as well <laughs> no. although it would be much easier to Google up right build a more unique stretch uh, but yeah so so beam is batch and stream combined which is a nod to the technology got it and then tell me about the Apache way and transitioning from the Google way to the Apache way because this was new to me you know I was like yeah we get to the Apache validation which I thought was a bit more of a like licensing governance decision and not so much a cultural one. But there are some certainly some cultural elements I came to learn. Well,
2: one of the big things in Apache is if it doesn't happen on the mailing list, it didn't happen, right? And so part of it is because you're very used to going on meetings with people and discussing things. Even if these people are not in the same company, you might still schedule time to talk to them. And you know reach decisions together but apache has a very strong philosophy of of being very transparent and putting the community first so this kind of closed door discussions are not favored i mean and you can you can talk to people of course but what's important is to be transparent about the discussions and and the sort of work that people are planning the they say share your intentions right and so yes you can you can have Uh, meetings with people to brainstorm about your work but but in the end it's important to keep the, the whole community looped in and the whole community means people that are in different different countries in different time zones in different companies and that may you know may have different very different time schedules maybe they just look at the project once a month or with much less frequency so it's important to be very transparent about all of this communication. And so in Apache, everything is done via mailing lists. And, you know, our projects pick the way they work. There's wikis, there's things like that. But the town square for Apache projects is the mailing list.
0: Yep. I think you really nailed it there, right? It's just there's so much variety in the communities. And putting my own spin on the Apache way, but the, the point is that you can make a project that users can count on outliving any particular stakeholder or contributor, right? And so in order to have that, it has to be easy for someone new to come along and figure out what's going on and become part of it. And it also has to be doable. Like, like Pablo mentioned, people are, maybe they have more sporadic engagement with the project. Either they're a user who's actually getting paid, but once in a while they need to fix something or it's just a volunteer that has a limited time or it's a full-time employee. And I think it's actually remarkable that the foundation has kind of come up with a governance model and a culture that allows all those kinds of people to work together, you know, in a fairly egalitarian way.
1: Yeah. Maybe a couple of elements that I recall as well. There's a, an incubation period, you know, you're, you're listed in an incubating project and then you can graduate to top level one. And and during the incubation period, there's kind of milestones you're reaching there's somebody from the Apache Foundation who kind of becomes a shepherd to the group. Is that correct? And in part, they're there to instill the Apache way.
0: Yeah, that's right. You have a champion. You have mentors. There's a whole whole system. At this point, I've mentored a couple projects now, and it's... Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because the Apache Foundation definitely has a culture of its own. And when projects come from different corporate environments, they are kind of different.
1: Was there any moments where you're like, man, what did we get ourselves into? Like this Apache way thing? Maybe the Apache way should be a little more of the Google way. No, I love it. I don't think so. But you know what? Internal to Google,
0: it's like already very similar, right? There's this concept of inner source and... It's not a word we we talk about, or at least I've heard inside Google, because you don't need it, because it already is. It's pervasive, right? You have this monorepo. You need to fix something in somebody else's project. You just go do it, right? And there are mailing lists throughout Google. And there's. I just feel that while there is a membrane sort of between internal stuff and external stuff, as long as you don't let that hold you back, it's not like a huge leap, the Google way and the Apache way. That's my feeling about it.
2: I feel like sometimes for people and Eric you might you might relate it might have been a little shocking or confusing to have to work in this community right maybe not not everyone agrees with uh, with all of your proposals right and there's you know there's not a boss that gets to say oh we're doing this right and so sometimes it can be can be a little confusing for people but I think over time I've also came to really appreciate it I appreciate the openness I appreciate the like Ken says the the ability for a truly open project to to outlive any any contributor or any commercial interest that is built around it I think it's awesome and I really like the model that Apache has where people will represent themselves and you know it's a principle that allows companies to build commercial interests around it but also, it prevents this kind of overly powerful single like business interest to you know to push the project whichever way it wants and you know push people out and 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 things like that over time I, i've realized that it's really good
0: <laughs> part of that i'll say is i think it also makes companies trying to do that futile which is good right? Like, because if you did have a couple of really powerful companies that wanted to influence it, it sort of makes it so it's not in their best interest, right? It aligns the project's interests and the like what the
1: company's affordances are. Yeah, it's a bit of an immune system to overly commercial activity. Good. Maybe to table that and return to the history just a moment because we we breezed through it. Any highlights that we should recall stories? I'm I'm trying to think of times when you hit a milestone or, or you discovered a new user that kind of surprised you, you didn't expect, that would be fun for us to hear? Something
2: that I could talk about is initially, right, like like Ken described, the data flow SDK was written in Java. And so the integrations with other runners were done directly in Java, right? And so over time the project, you know, there were investments to to be truly kind of this language agnostic, right? Any language you want and any runner you want. And so It took some time first to figure out exactly what that was, what that looked like, I believe. And Ken was, you know, there longer than me. But, you know, it took some time for the project going from being a very Java focused project to figuring out that we really needed to fully develop this abstractions, this this API that allowed us to be language agnostic. To starting to have actual kind of language agnosticity and recently being able to build a prototype in a hackathon where we added a new language and uh, agnosticity, agnosticism. Anyway,
0: <laughs> it's hard for me to tell cool stories without feeling like I'm shortchanging everybody whose stories I don't remember off the top of my head. But I will call out I thought it was really cool when we were developing that and we had like portable data flow runner that can run any language. And then we we're just kind of building out the Flink and the Spark runner and I don't know if this is just like a shout out, but then the folks working on the Samsa runner just like just figured it out. And now they're running Python on SAMS all of a sudden. And like for me, my favorite thing when I'm working, like as I work on bigger teams, is when stuff happens that you didn't know was happening. And so I'm just calling that out as a thing I just didn't know was happening, and then it was done. <laughs> I I'm so so I'm happy and impressed by that.
1: I remember when Skion showed up from the Spotify team, they were seemed very excited about some like clever things that they were excited to introduce to the, the project. I don't recall what happened to that, but that was always fun.
2: Some things have been introduced and some have not been able to be introduced, but yeah, uh, she's still there. There's, uh, it's a Scala wrapper for the Beam Java SDK. And speaking from, from the data flow side, it was developed by Spotify, but I I know that there's it, they're not the only ones using it, and so that's that's also another awesome thing that came from from a user uh, that became a community contribution that it's benefits the whole community. And yes, there's there's very cool features developed in in Shield. Like they developed a shuffling algorithm that would reduce the amount of data that actually gets serialized and exchanged between machines because they were trying to reduce their costs for. Spotify Wrapped, which is the yearly kind of retrospective that they do of the music that you listen to, so really awesome stories.
0: Oh, I just thought of another thing that just kind of came. I know the people, but I don't know which company it came from. The you know Beam sequel was developed. It was a community contribution. I mean, in some sense, because I'm at Google, whenever something happens from someone not at Google, I'm like, you're so cool, and and that's exactly what happened. Right? Beam's sequel came. It started um, outside of Google, and it was it was Mingmin and Mingmin. It was, like a team of guys about the same name, uh, same handle. And yeah, that's just another highlight of the awesome things that they were users and then they became power users and then they wrapped SQL on top of Beam. And then, you know, and now that's heavily used.
1: We haven't covered, but maybe it's worth just giving a nod to it and if folks want to dig into it more, they can. Part of what's special about Beam is, is you kind of address this problem with, with unifying batch and streaming that folks have struggled with around representing time and timestamps and temporality in general. Maybe, maybe we'll just say a few words and then we'll move on to where the project's at today.
0: I have opinions about this. I'm going to repeat an opinion that I'm, I'm refining how I think about this. Like, So I, I think that batch processing has always been used to implement streaming use cases. And that is sort of the origin of this, right? If you are running a, a daily job, Like your business is running continuously, but you're just processing it overnight. And so batch and streaming, what you're trying to do has always been streaming, right? And so it may or may not have latency constraints, but it is a streaming problem. And so you can, like the whole continuum between batch processing and stream processing is applicable. And so unifying these is actually really important because... You want to move towards streaming but you certainly still need batch for when you like make a change you want to run an experiment or you want to catch up you know and you need both batch and streaming even in a streaming only context which is what we're we're all sort of moving towards and streaming is a more natural fit for your business because that's actually what you're trying to get done you the actual business you're trying to run almost all of the time
1: yeah, if I could jump in, I'm less the expert here, but, but I've often given a lot of thought as to, you know, why are we doing batch or streaming for any given use case? And, and you're kind of giving the, the implicit answer, which is that streaming is the superset of use cases. It's kind of the base case for what we're trying to accomplish. I wonder, it, it seems to me there's like kind of two reasons why we end up in batch. one is that we want to aggregate things. And so we, we run a, a job at the period of aggregation. And rather than making that a function of the pipeline, we we just make the pipeline only run when we want to aggregate. And then the other is that it creates a bit of modularity where like I can run a pipeline and produce some files and you can also run a pipeline on those files and we don't have to talk to each other. Like there's common interfaces for reading files. And so if I produce files, you can read files. Suddenly everyone can do their own thing. And it's, you know, it decentralizes. The, the work. Whereas in, in streaming you kinda of, there's a bit of centralization. You like you have to be aware of the stream and you have to speak the same language that the stream producer is is speaking. And maybe there's some proprietary interfaces you're not familiar with. And so yeah, you know, those are my two reasons where I go back to like why we ended up in batch, even though you're right, the world is a streaming world.
0: Message queues are the streaming version of that file system interface, yeah, right? right? That's you can you you need to be able to throw stuff on the queue when the other person's not listening and they need to be able to pick it up and, and process it
2: one thing is just that yes the problem the problem will often be a streaming problem and then what will happen is the current systems can't address it well right so as an example it's much easier to deal with your data schema changing in batch than in streaming right so if you know this is the case for beam if you if the schema of your data could change in the source then you know you'd have to do, to relaunch your pipeline, or you'd have to deal with, with that. And it's more difficult to reason about that when with a system that is running all the time, rather than, say, you know, we have a batch process that runs at some point before the schema change and at some point after the schema change, and we don't have to break our heads to figure out how to deal with that. And, and that's just one example of a particular technical problem that arises right, when we try to solve a streaming problem with an implementation of a system that tries to solve streaming problems.
1: Yeah, totally. Cascading batch processes are super brutal, right? The other thing you mentioned is the distinction between event
0: time and processing time, right, is something that we have hammered home a lot, and I think it's worth going into because there's a high-level conceptual thing here where, like what you described, where you run the pipeline at the interval of aggregation right like your daily job is aggregating daily stuff that's always been wrong if you are doing a daily aggregation but you're trying to aggregate stuff from a few days ago it just doesn't it doesn't make sense right you wouldn't just say count everything and run that every day it makes no sense what you would do is you like if you're in a SQL database you say count and group by day right so the idea of grouping your data by some piece of time that is part of the data has always been what you should be doing. And it's never made sense, like not ever has it made sense to say I'm in a process and every minute I'll like spit out what I got. Right? That's fine if what you want is for your output to update every minute. But it's not at all fine if you want to be having aggregations of stuff that happened over a minute. Right. So event time when is the term we use in Beam for your data. Like the the time stamp in a time series or event stream that describes when the thing happened. So you want to know how many people logged on in an hour? You got to like group it by that timestamp. And the tricky part is it's very hard to know when you have all the data for a time period, right? That's the challenge. If you want to say add up all the thingies that happened in an hour and you have unreliable networks or whatever, right? There's a, there's a classic list of reasons why you you don't know that you have all the data for an hour, and you never will. And even when you're doing batch processing, you don't know that. Like, when you run your nightly batch, you don't know you have everything for that day. You probably don't. You might not even have everything for, like, the week before. So, yeah, it's inherent to the use case. So, Beam incorporates, like, this, this concept where, like, your data has timestamps in it, and those timestamps, like, drive a watermark, which is just our way of approximating when we really believe an aggregation is complete and you have to have some way of estimating that an aggregation is complete in order to solve a streaming use case regardless of whether you're executing in batch or streaming.
2: And I just wanted to strengthen Ken's idea with an example that Ken gave me at some point, which is invoicing. Right, If you're trying to send invoices to your customer, you're trying to add up whatever happened in the last let's say month that is invoiceable, and you might get stuff that is processed late, right? Maybe you send the invoices every second of the next month and you get some report that something happened previous month but the report arrives on the fifth of the month because, you know, people are processing it by hand. And so you don't just invoice that on the next month, you send an adjustment to the previous month to your customer, right? And so this applies in in streaming pipelines, right? Where you, you have to decide what to do with delayed data Yes, you can just decide to clump it up with the next period of aggregation, but you can also do other things, right? And so invoicing can be a good example to reason about.
0: I love that example because I hadn't thought about it before, but banks have got event time and processing time right forever because you look at your statement, there's a transaction time, right? There's when the transaction happened, and then there's when the transaction posted right? Like the bank, when they send you an invoice, they're not saying like, here are all the transactions you made in this month. They're saying, here's all the transactions that posted in this month. So they're using their processing time in terms of how they group it together. If they wanted to do a proper grouping by when you made the
1: transaction, they'd have to wait a little bit longer to send the invoice. Great, and uh, you mentioned watermarks and I don't know, maybe I didn't fully understand them at the time, but this watermark is a thing you can describe in the in, in Beam in the programming interface that says, this is when it's probably safe to aggregate for now. You have control of it, but Beam also gives you some default things you can just run with and it's like a heuristic that you guys feel like is a, a representative way of doing it. Or, Or do you describe your watermark to Beam?
2: I'll try to be as practical as possible This all depends on how you're reading your data, where your data is coming from, but in the end, a watermark is is just the system trying to estimate what data we've processed so far. So going back to the invoicing, when we send an invoice on the second of the month, it's because we're estimating that by then we will have received all of the transactions that occurred in the previous month. And so when we send an invoice on the second of the month, it's because we're estimating that our watermark Reach the end of the previous month because our data from the previous month has arrived, right? And this is because we don't know the future. This is a guesstimate, usually, depending on the source. Because the problem is we need to decide when to send the invoices, right? Our customers want their invoices soon, right? And so we could tell them, hey, we want to wait until the 15th of the month to send you the invoices so that we're sure that we got all of the transactions, but instead we have to do this straight off. And so... The watermark is the way in which the, the runner and particularly the source, which is the, the place that we're reading from, usually the message queue that we're reading from, estimate what is the time up to which we've analyzed or received the data.
1: Great. Let's wrap up with, with where we are now. What's, what's the Apache Beam project up like? You know, for me it's been four plus years since I kind of followed things closely. And tell us what we have to look forward to this year. I'll
0: start with a couple small things, right? Pandas-compatible data frames is a new thing that's coming out. The Go SDK is obviously huge, right? So these are, like, current events. And the portability story that we mentioned is really coming to the fore, as mentioned. We've got this prototype TypeScript SDK and, like, all of these connectors that are available to all the different SDKs. And one of the things that I'm now going to segue into, having these different language communities reaches different... Sort of use cases and groups and a really important development is in the Python arena we've got this data frames API and we also have integrations with machine learning frameworks we call it AI now uh, with, there's a lot of AI integrations the one that's I think notable is like if you're trying to serve predictions right there's this library and beam now that where you can do this and I want to highlight like the work around this and we're trying to make beam is becoming a like a premier platform for AI engineering. And you need this, you might think that it's like not that complicated maybe to serve predictions. But you, the moment you start really trying to productionize it, you end up needing to just sort of deal with a lot of performance concerns and deployment, like how to scale up your serving, and how to deal with bad data, how to like get metrics on how it's going. So the name we have for it is Run Inference. And that's coming out as sort of the next milestone for Beam as an AI platform. Am I forgetting anything in that arena, Pablo?
2: Although... Um, no, I was just going to mention one more problem that can often happen that we're trying to deal with when you're working with large ML models and serving them and doing inferences, loading them into memory, right? There are gigabytes of a model, and so you know, we're also working with, you know, how do we make sure to load this model once in memory, but be able to process in parallel with this model? But yeah, I think those are the big things that come to mind.
0: Yeah. I'm going to highlight how this is related to being this cross engine, cross language Apache project thing is that we are building on top of like scikit learn and PyTorch and TensorFlow and TFX, right? The integrations in Beam, it's like a natural place for other portability projects right and so it's natural when you're implementing something like this in beam you also implement it as an abstraction atop various other platforms
2: i'll mention also on the community side we have beam summit coming up which is kind of the biggest beam community event we're doing it in austin on july 18 to 20 in 2022 it's hybrid, so it's going to be live streamed, but we're also going to have people in person. So if anyone is interested in attending, I'll share a, a discount code with Eric, and yeah, feel free to join. It's going to be fun. First on-site Beam Summit since you know the pandemic started.
1: Yeah, I, I've been to a couple of conferences in the last you know three months, and boy, are people excited to see each other again. Yeah, so I, I'm I I'm that Beam community in the same place. Can you throw in like one of those uh, air horn drops at this
0: part? <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> 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 there you go. Ken, Pablo, great to see you again. We didn't talk much about the team, but I think what's maybe kind of cool about this effort is there's just a lot of people within Google working on it. I, I imagine some open source projects are are kind of started with an individual or a handful of individuals and they represent the kind of locus of control or thought. But, but really, um, Apache Beam's like... To a village right that raised this child
0: it really is and of course it's nice to see you again as well and yeah it's kind of wild there's no benevolent dictator and there's not even a candidate for who that would be it's truly a distributed system sorry sorry <laughs> i apologize <laughs>
1: You can subscribe to the podcast and check out our community Slack at contributor.fyi. If you like the show, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor.